Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast from the new online magazine at AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the first show of 2021, John Eikenbury, Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton and author of the new book, A World Safe for Democracy, Liberal Internationalism and the Crisis of Global Order. Uh, John, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here. So congratulations on the new book. And in the light of events this week, you can't have imagined when you wrote it that the first priority in making the world safe for democracy would be securing democracy in the United States. Absolutely. It it does feel like uh, we're at a historic moment when the most basic questions about liberal democracy are, again, uh, up for grabs. And that's, in fact, in some ways what I tried to do when I started this uh, book project uh, at the very beginning with a series of lectures at the University of Virginia in November of 2016, really the week after Trump's election. So a very uh, somber, somber crowd, I must say then. Uh, But in some ways, here we are at the end of this four years. And uh, it seems like the questions that we're asking are even more profound today about what are the sources of international order? Can liberal democracy uh, make a comeback? Can capitalism and democracy be balanced and rebalanced? And and more specifically in my book, uh, what is the future of liberal internationalism as a way of thinking about and acting in the world? What What is the prospect? On what ground can the flag of liberal internationalism be, be planted? And that's where the book starts. And I, I decided, uh, rather than immediately address the current moment that in some ways more illuminating would be to ask the broader historical questions of how we got here and to take the long view and to try to reorient the framing and the default upon which we evaluate developments. It's not 1989 in my view or even 1945, but it's the larger uh, 200, 250 year um, uh, experience of the, the rise and spread and of liberal democracy and the repeated efforts by these uh, countries to shape and reshape the international system. So that's that's where I start. Just very briefly, uh, let me just say to the listeners, the book has three objectives. One is to try to show the depth of the ideas and the lineages and gravitas, shall we say, of the liberal international tradition. Uh, I'm not sure a book has done that fully for a kind of the full expanse of of the period to give a sense of what this is as an ongoing set of ideas and projects. Secondly, to to try to to be honest about the accomplishments and failures. Uh, clearly, liberal internationalism today is is in crisis. Uh, what, why, and what has it done right, and what has it done wrong? And if we are to redefend liberalism and liberal democracy and liberal internationalism, what what is there to defend? What what are the are the key aspects uh, looking back that we want to uh, save and champion going forward. Then finally, a kind of reorientation of liberal internationalism uh, away from uh, Woodrow Wilson, who I, I assume we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, but uh, but to recenter it to, to FDR, uh, where I think the real revolution occurs, but also in some sense to re uh, uh, re re reframe liberal internationalism away from the notion of it as a kind of idealist, global, 
uh, march towards a better world and the global spread of liberal democracy. That in, in my reading, it's it's more about a kind of pragmatic management of interdependence by liberal democracies. And, and that's one of the threads that I try to pull through the book. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that, I mean, you talk about Woodrow Wilson there, obviously the title of the book, A World Safe for Democracy, a kind of echoes Wilson. But e- even there, you try to reclaim him. You have an interesting take on Wilson that uh, he wanted a system to protect democracy. It's not necessarily about democracy promotion in the way that he's often understood. And that's the essence of liberal internationalism, uh, you say. And as it turns out, uh, liberal democracy itself in many ways. That's that's right. Uh, the basic, uh, the, the essence really of, of liberal internationalism is often uh, traced to uh, Wilson's famous uh, 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 statement about making the world safe for democracy. And it has been understood as this kind of idealist crusade. Uh, what, what I'm suggesting is there is a second reading of that phrase that you can take it literally as making uh, safe uh, liberal democracies by organizing the world around them. And, and that's the, the conceptual um, move I make in this book to, 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 to think about liberal internationalism as building a, a, a kind of container, uh, an ecosystem, uh, an environment, uh, a geopolitical space in which liberal democracies can uh, protect themselves, uh, uh, solve problems and 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 lead in in the broader world in in building uh, structures of order and so forth uh, and the the kind of insight there I think at the center of this uh, uh, safety uh, uh, framing is is that liberal democracies are as we're seeing today literally in real time vulnerable uh, we, we we've kind of forgotten that after the Cold War, when it seemed like they were juggernauts that could not be stopped, uh, now we see them as, as more fragile. And I, I, I think in the book I say they're sort of uh, like orchids. You know, they, they, they need an environment, a greenhouse or, or a terrarium to, to protect them and create an environment for them. And you think about, the, the, obviously, their vulnerability. That's a very old theme in Republican political theory, that republics are, are unusually... Uh, vulnerable to predation and geopolitical pressure that can upend their very uh, um, liberty-oriented constitutional systems, Uh, but also that liberal democracy, and this is a very important point for me in the book, is itself uh, deeply uh, in tension with it, with it, with its own values, that there, there's a kind of set of ideas that, that are, are, in tension with each other, liberty and, and equality, or inter, in, uh, individualism and community, uh, sovereignty and interdependence. And so liberal democracies, even under the best of conditions, are continuously uh, struggling to make trade-offs, some of them, some, some of them quite tragic, uh, trying to, to balance, compromise, and, and then, of course, meet the great challenges of modernity. And so that requires a more sophisticated kind of international order than, than what realists and the kind of uh, theories of the world that, that focus primarily on power and not on regimes. Uh, it, it requires a more high order functioning system. And I think that's at the, at the center of liberal internationalism, trying to build on the Westphalian order, but to create 
um, frameworks, uh, an ecosystem for these countries to to survive and prosper. I, 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 sp- I suppose that's part of the problem, isn't it? That, you know, realists like Henry Kissinger, Hannah Arendt and Morgenthau and these kind of people, or, or Marxists like the historian E.H. Carr, who you quote in the book. I mean, Carr was at Versailles and, and he thinks that this is all utopian nonsense, that it will always fail because when it comes up against the ruthless, anarchic reality of power politics, uh, it, it has... It just simply doesn't have the the wherewithal to kind of push back. It, it is, to use your phrase, a kind of a hothouse flower, an orchid that inevitably will wilt um, in when confronted with political realities. Yes, and and I'm in in one sense I'm agreeing with with, with that that there are uh, conditions that have to be kind of put in place for liberal democracies, uh, and that it, it, in some sense the the Wilsonian moment failed uh, because there wasn't a kind of adequate framework for for these democracies. But I, I think E.H. Carr got it wrong in the sense that uh, the, there, the, uh, the the internal uh, um, kernel was not an idealist one. It was a very um, uh, pragmatic uh, build. Uh, build on what we've got, take advantage of the fact that the core of the world system in 1919-20 are liberal democracies and to to try to 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 build on that 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 condition. Um, and of course it, there were failures along the way and and I put a lot of attention on what happens in the 30s and 40s as these uh, Wilsonian internationalists and other internationalists who are, who saw in the rear view mirror what went wrong, at Versailles and with the Wilsonian vision, uh, redid their vision uh, uh, in the face of fascism and totalitarianism. I mean, it, it's one of the, I, I think, one of the most fascinating conclusions that you come to in in this book that is, you know, very positive generally about the advantages of liberal internationalism. But in some ways, your conclusion actually ends up being quite stark because, you know, the point that you make is that, yes, to some degree, this is universalist, that it has a kind of a moral component, but it is also quite thin. I think you use the word that it's a shapeshifter that attaches itself to bigger, more ambitious historical forces. Does that inevitably mean that if we attach too much to liberal internationalism, it's going to fail us? It it means something like that. It it means that liberal internationalism is not a kind of uh, self-contained project that can succeed on its own terms. That it is is a a paradoxical, uh, quite quite ambitious, it has this kind of sense of, of being uh, uh, capacious intellectually and politically universal in many ways, but, but as a political project, it's quite thin. There aren't people out in the streets marching to the liberal internationalist uh, banner. It is in some sense a, a flag without an army. And so I argue in the book that it's always tied itself uh, uh, to a host in some sense, if you want to use that kind of imagery. Uh, uh, in, in various periods, in various ways, uh, uh, empire and imperialism in the 19th century, uh, nationalism, capitalism, uh, great power rivalry projects, and, and Anglo-American hegemony. And so, in, and so this is both good news and bad news. It's, it's good news in the sense that liberal internationalism as a way of organizing the world 
would never be as influential if it didn't tie itself to hegemonic projects and other forces that push it outward. That's the good news. It, it has an ability to to tie itself. Others embrace it for its 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 means, while liberals embrace it for its ends. Uh, but on the other hand, it does mean that the larger coalitions, world historically organized, uh, will take the world often in very different directions. And 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 the, and that sometimes those directions can actually end up being in direct contradiction of the things which it says it believes in. That I mean, you're really good in in the way that you talk about um, the uh, liberal internationalism and empire as a, as an organising logic. Um, and and as you know, that's one of the reasons why many actually see liberal internationalism as a kind of adopting this high moral tone for what actually is quite a low, dirty policy. Yes. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time in the book thinking about liberalism and empire. And obviously there's a huge debate over the decades and indeed centuries on that, John Stuart Mill and everything afterwards. Um, I, I I do make the argument that, that liberalism and liberal internationalism are deeply entangled and complicitous. Uh, there's blood on the hands of liberal internationalists and many of them, and you know, Richard, about this more than I do, perhaps, the kind of the, the British liberal imperialists uh, 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 who uh, were Robert Cecil and, and the, the, uh, those on the British side who, were, who saw the liberal project, the League of Nations, uh, as a kind of uh, framework for legitimating a kind of 20, 20th century version of British empire. Uh, so on the one hand, it's all there and it's, there's, there's entanglement. But on the other hand, there are these... Uh, separations that I try to identify in one of my chapters of how liberal internationalism, particularly after World War II, became tied to uh, organizing and really visualizing uh, a kind of post-imperial world order. If we think of the global system over centuries, perhaps millennia, being primarily regional empires, then global empires in the age of uh, the Industrial Revolution, but in the 20th century, that imperial framework for world order gave way to uh, to Westphalian uh, sovereign equality, the United Nations kind of uh, principled framework. Uh, and liberal internationalism ultimately uh, plunked itself down for that that ontology, for that for the kind of the, the, the pieces of world order would be built around nation states. And so in many ways that gave it uh, uh, alliance with, those uh, forces not always always seen themselves as, as liberal, many obviously not liberal, trying to push uh, national self-determination movements uh, in the non-Western world. So it's it's been on both sides. I, I do kind of in the book suggest that it, 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 and I do this in pushing off against what I might call the kind of the revisionist left critique that suggests the liberal era and liberal internationalism in American hands is simply another version of empire. I, I resist that and become quite passionate about uh, about pinning down why that isn't the case. But but clearly the entanglements are there. So it's always a kind of 
Um, I mean, it's it's interesting that I mean, very often liberal internationalism is is seen as being uh, naive uh, in the way that it, it kind of sees the world. But uh, one of the things about the his very historical perspective that you take in the book is that uh, you make it very clear that actually liberal internationalism is born out of revolution, whether it's scientific revolution, political revolution, industrialization, going back to the late eighteenth and, and early nineteenth century, and that in many ways it's grappling with that notion of modernity itself, a world in motion that brings with it both progress and destruction. I mean, actually, that seems very familiar uh, to us. So maybe liberal internationalism is can be the right thing to harness uh, that sense of progress and combat that sense of destruction. Exactly. That, that's. I'm glad you, you mentioned that because that really is one of the key moves in the book to to suggest that what make what is at the center of the liberal vision uh, is how these countries uh, navigate modernity and, and and modernity is debated among liberal internationalists who are of, are all different stripes and sizes and shapes uh, those on the, on the, the kind of the social democratic left and those on the more classical liberal, liberal right so there's there's a lot of debate and it, it's it's contested as liberalism itself is contested, so too liberal internationalism. Uh, but there is this um, uh, there is this kind of sense that it is uh, a, a, a problem-solving uh, logic to grapple with modernity. And, and, and across, the, to- across the, the different generations, some have been more optimistic about modernity, that it's, it, it, the, 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 the deck of cards is stacked in favor of liberalism and liberal democracy and other times uh, and places, uh, uh, the, the views have been more pessimistic, that it's, it's more a- a- agonistic kind of liberalism uh, of Isaiah Berlin uh, uh, and others. So there is this kind of debate, but, but broadly speaking, across two centuries, the, the deep view, I think, is that modernity is kind of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde phenomenon, that it has, with its underlying forces of science, technology, and industrialism, uh, brings the possibility of, of machines and technology and innovations and knowledge accumulation that can make the world better and, and can lead to institutions that bias the flow. But on the other hand, uh, it, it can unleash uh, 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 powers and technologies that can be put in the hand of, hands of, of illiberal powers, as it did in that critical period in the middle 20th century. So it's liberal internationalism as trying to yield the benefits on the upside and protect against the dangers on the d- downside. That's, that's the frame. That's, that's the argument I think uh, is at the center of this, this, this argument about modernity and liberalism. Yeah, you've mentioned the middle of the 20th century twice now. Obviously, there's a sense that America made a hash of things in 1919, but made a much better fist of it uh, in 1945. What, what did they get right then? And what lessons can we learn from that? Yes, I mean, it was one of these moments that's been utterly fascinating, the, the the period from the Great Depression into the World War II and liberals of, of FDR's generation trying to rethink the project. And I was very uh, influenced by Ira Katznelson's book, Desolation and, and Enlightenment, which looks at the, the kind of generation of 1945 that had lived through 
total war, the Great Depression, fascism, totalitarianism, the Holocaust, and the atomic bomb, and yet they picked up the pieces and they tried to to a fashion a, a kind of world weary liberalism to re uh, create the foundations for open societies, tying it to a much more kind of uh, interventionistic and in, inclusive international order. So th that's my answer to your question. That the, the, in the, the FDR, what I call Roosevelt Rooseveltian internationalism, was different from. Uh, Wilsonian internationalism in a, a fundamental way that I really didn't understand until the very end of writing this book. And that is that in, in Wilson's time, the, the liberal international order was in some sense made possible because uh, of the, the glue that, that it was the glue that would hold it together was the vitality of liberal democracies. And the next generation of FDR, it was the opposite. It, the, the international order was needed as the glue to hold liberal democracies together. And so you needed this more, this ecosystem much more in a much more comprehensive way. You had a new era of liberal democracy. Your governments were expected to do more things. The social democratic era was had arrived. Um, interdependence was seen in, in a much more clear-eyed way as being complex and, and potentially quite dangerous. Uh, that was not something that was fully understood in Wilson's day, day, although he understood about modernity and the typhoon of, 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 of modernity. But it was much more um, uh, uh, realized in, in, the F, in FDR's era. And again, this kind of the, the liberal democracies were fighting um, uh, enemies who were illiberal. Uh, uh, and that kind of U.S. as the first in freedom uh, from its founding period that it, at every turn it has been geopolitically in struggle with countries that have been less liberal and less liberal democratic than it and in those struggles it has forced itself to think about its principles the struggles have always been more than simply uh, uh, geopolitical realist struggles they've been about uh, protecting a way of life and in F in FDR's uh, age, it was the four freedoms that we were, uh, the, the, the FDR called, called the enemy, uh, you know, regimes based on gangsterism. Uh, there was a real sense that, that uh, something uh, existential was at stake here. And so that's what I think was different, a more ambitious um, understanding that, uh, that there would need to be institutions and uh, a collaborative structuring of liberal democracy that countries could not go it alone they needed to have this this uh this their own systems woven together in this larger international order that would be doing a lot of work for for national governments to make good on their on their liberal democratic uh, commitments. Yeah, and one of the, of course, the really um, interesting aspects of that is that it works and that it works over multiple generations right through to the end of the, the Cold War, as you make clear in the book. And initially, it's FDR's One World Global Order, which becomes the kind of Western global order in, 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 in order to uh, uh, fight the Cold War. But you know, what happens in 1989 um, at the end of the at the end of the Cold War, we had Peter Baker and Su 
Susan Glasser on talking about uh, their excellent biography of, of James Baker and trying to tease out this contradiction that on the one hand, James Baker is seen as one of the most consequential secretaries of state uh, in the kind of the post-war era. And yet, on the other hand, the system that gets put in place doesn't uh, even last a generation. It fails the stress test of the war on terror and then the 2008 crash and to where we are here today. So what happens uh, in this kind of post-Cold War era? Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, James Baker. I, I was at the State Department in his last year uh, 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 working with Dennis Ross and those who were, in some sense, doing the work of, of reimagining world order after the Cold War. And, and there was and you, Baker talks about this in his memoir about taking a leaf from the, the post-World uh, War II uh, Atchison and Truman kind of way of looking at order, building it around institutions. In, in some ways, what what Baker and those who followed, and certainly, and then the kind of hyper global transformation vision of the '90s with Clinton and those that followed, um, there was a sense that that the the world had spoken, that there was a kind of ratification of the virtues and the functionality of of liberal democracy. What I argue in my book is that there was a kind of the, the, the liberal democratic world was a victim of its own success in a certain way, that it, it kind of overran its foundations. It was more of a Carl uh, Polanyi problem than a E.H. Carr problem. It wasn't about maintaining hegemony. It was about not having the, the governance structures were overrun by the expansion of this order. And, and my little argument that uh, is the core of the what went wrong uh, question is is that during the the high golden age of liberal internationalism liberal order uh, during the Cold War uh, it was really a club where countries that were in it there a kind of logic of conditionality you join in in it uh, you get trade and security uh, you but you do so by buying into a suite of responsibilities and obligations and reciprocal uh, political, um, activities, uh, but when the Cold War ended, that club uh, gave way uh, in the face of this global expansion, which was widely celebrated, uh, and it became less of a club and more, and this is my term of art, more of a shopping mall, uh, a kind of public utility where you could walk in and get certain benefits from it uh, uh, and not necessarily buy into the, the whole package. And uh, in that, that sense, what you see is a kind of fragmentation and undermining of this logic of, of conditionality. Uh, and so it, 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 that's my, 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 what I, I think happens. It, 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 it loses its, the bargains, the institutions, the social purposes that had to kind of have a more solid framework of, 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 of understanding among actors who had huge stakes in its preservation. Now, you say at the end of the book that even though you sense that the tide might be going out on uh, liberal internationalism, that you actually think the world needs more liberal internationalism, uh, not less. Uh, but, I, you know, I wonder with the rise of China, with the events in the, the, in the Capitol building this week, you know, do, do you think that the rest of the world can still look to America for a rules-based cooperative system? I mean, other countries might just justifiably say, look, get your own house in order first. I, 
I think they do. And I've, I've been on the receiving end uh, in, as I'm sure others have, uh, even in the last 24 hours, uh, about, about America as, 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 as shocking kind of uh, uh, new, 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 new understanding of the United States. The United States is seen in a new light. And, and that is definitely true. And I think it will take years, uh, uh, perhaps a generation, for, for this uh, ugly moment to, to be put in perspective and to, to be overcome by, by the kind of rebuilding of, if, if we can do it, there's no guarantee. Uh, but I, I think there's a, a, a shocking sense, even in the United States, perhaps particularly in the United States, that, that we have gone off the rails and uh, so, so, um, so that that sense that my only optimism, I, I I have to kind of grasp at straws like everybody else. But if I were to say what gives me a little bit of a glimmer that liberal internationalism still has a future, one is is this notion that we've seen the alternative, uh, and we've come up to the abyss, and we look over and we see something we don't want. So a kind of moment of re reevaluation politically uh, and intellectually but secondly um, China is clearly on the horizon offering up a very different model of modernity uh, capitalism without liberalism capitalism without democracy it is in the kind of Jurgen Habermas sense a modernity project that we didn't see it as that way five years ago, certainly not during the time of the of the WTO negotiations, but now you can see it more clearly. It's certainly Xi's ambition. I, I'm not, I'm somewhat skeptical, uh, but it's there. And it, it, it should give pause to those who, who don't want to live in that kind of system, who do value you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, limited government, all these sorts of values tied up in the liberal international story that they have to raise their game. They have to, if not circle the wagons, they need to come together in ways to, to provide a, a kind of rehabilitate their institutions. They need a, to make the world safe for democracy because uh, she is going to make the world safe for autocracy. Uh, so those are the two, two, um, two reasons that I think there is, there is a pathway forward. And then the third one, if I were to add a third, would be simply the world, the modernity itself is going to become much more of a fraught uh, context for all states going forward, the kind of nature of interdependence, economic security, environmental, uh, artif you know, artificial intelligence, geoengineering, quantum computing, the way in which states are going to be able to harness uh, uh, technologies for surveillance, uh, civil societies uh, outside of the reach of states. Uh, that's a question that, that, that will, at the end of the 21st century, will that still be a phenomenon? Uh, civil societies that are uh, semi-autonomous from, from state power. Uh, so, so I think uh, in that, that world of where the demands for organizing and cooperating to, to, to manage Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde problems, a, a, a worldview that, that entails multilateral cooperation, reciprocal uh, deal-making, um, security cooperation, all these sorts of things are, 
it's the only game in town. Uh, China doesn't have a, a, a software to run world order that has anything relevant to, the, to managing modernity other than authoritarianism. And, uh, and so in some sense, by default, there is a kind of um, world out there that liberal internationalism properly imagined and rebuilt can be the, the centerpiece of, 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 of coping with. So I think that's the, those would be my arguments if I were forced to try to say why it's not all over with. Yeah, and I, I really like that answer because it does kind of capture it, the, the sense and the tone of the book. There's a kind of a dogged optimism uh, that, that you display in the book. And, and I was very struck that at one stage you, you actually flip Hegel, that the owl of Minerva does not fly only at dusk. That, uh, and it seemed to me that that was your central message, that liber the strength of liberal internationalism over generations has been that it can and has learnt from its mistakes, can do again, and so therefore will actually have something to offer in this moment. That, that's absolutely uh, right, Richard. That's, that's the, the message. That's the, the, that's, that's the hope that, uh, that there is this kind of acknowledgement of what's going wrong before it's too late. And I, I think that the, the last 200 years show that there is there, we, there's evidence of that. There's a kind of usable past of problem solving that uh, uh, can can be redeployed uh, in these in this new in this new world. So the book is A World Safe for Democracy, Liberal Internationalism and the Crisis of Global Order. It's written by my guest, John Eikenbury, and published by Yale University Press. But for now, John, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. It's been a real pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying Happy New Year and thanks for listening. <laughs>